This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 476. principle behind choosing greatness is that it is a choice. And it's not some far off day when we retire that greatness will finally come because we put all the effort in. It's a daily engagement in your life. So you feel great about what happened. You feel great about how you showed up. And when things are outside of your control, you're responding in a way you feel very proud of. Do you yearn to achieve more, to make more, to do more? Well, you're not alone. We are all drawn to the irresistible sensation of accomplishing great things and succeeding mightily. Yet despite our best efforts, ultimate success and joy can seem so elusive. Why? Well, all too often we're running on autopilot, repeating past behaviors, and achieving the same results. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And we foster that growth, of course, through books. One of my favorite pastimes, reading nonfiction. I believe if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading has got to be a part of the plan. So what I do here is often interview authors, typically with brand new books coming out, and that is the case today. And we talk about their latest book and their unique insights on a number of different topics. Today's book is called Choosing Greatness, an Evidence-Based Approach to Achieving Exceptional Outcomes. It's been out for less than a month, and its author is Christina Curtis. I'm going to ask Christina what she's learned about the importance of carving out time to think, some of the benefits in her estimation of positive self-talk, framing problems as questions to help better navigate change, and her recent 180 on the importance of self-care. Read to Lead Plus, the new premium tier inside the Read to Lead community is indeed open. In fact, we've had dozens of folks come in in the last week to try it out free for a month. Our very first guest expert training happened yesterday. But don't worry, if you haven't yet signed up for the free trial, you didn't miss it necessarily. You can view the recording during your free trial if you like. That was with today's guest, by the way, Christina Curtis. She talked about high-impact communication. So if you like what you hear from her on the show today, you're probably going to want to check out that free training from yesterday. You can get that 30-day trial right now when you go to jeffbrown.me, click Choose a Plan, and then select Read to Lead Plus Membership. You'll get free access for 30 days. That's available for just a little while longer. Again, it's all at jeffbrown.me. In just a couple of weeks, we'll be welcoming our second guest expert. That's going to be Lisa Bragg. And I'll be leading some training of my own over the next couple of weeks. So during your free trial, you'll have access to no less than three workshops, plus lots of other content as well. One more time, the place to go to get signed up, get your free trial right now of that Read to Lead Plus membership, jeffbrown.me. Christina Curtis is the founder of Curtis Leadership Consulting, a thought leader on motivation and goal attainment. She's had articles published in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, Entrepreneur, and Psychology Today. Her new book is called Choosing Greatness, an Evidence-Based Approach to Achieving Exceptional Outcomes. Well, Christina, I'm excited for you that this is your first book, having just been out for a few weeks, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. 
Well, I, I want to leave the story you share at the end for the reader. I don't want to give that away. But if you're yeah. willing, I'd love for you to share a little bit about a harrowing story you share toward the beginning, if for no other reason than I think it could help people who, God forbid, ever find themselves in, in the same situation. Yeah, it was a crazy experience. I was uh, driving my kids to school and we were a little late, as you do as a, a working entrepreneur a mom. Uh, it was so we were rushing and we were about to pull into the school parking lot when somebody actually opened the passenger door. And you know, the initial thought that I had was, okay, it's my husband, right? He must have seen us pulling up. I didn't because logic was not, it was just, it was very startling. Someone was opening the passenger door. Anyway, it was a man with a knife and he came into the vehicle and I remember pushing him out as hard as I could, trying to get him out of the car. He closed the door and that was it. We were in there with my two kids in the back seat and this stranger who was armed um, with a knife up to my throat. And so uh, I did what I, I believe most of us would do is I full on panicked and I started screaming and not that anyone could hear me, but I was screaming as loud as I could. And I thought, if I, if I get into an accident, someone will come. Someone's going to help us. So I hit the gas pedal and tried to hit a pole and then tried to veer off the road. I thought if I get into an accident, someone will come right in my head. That's the thought thought process. But the more agitated I became, what was super interesting, Jeff, is the more agitated he became. Mm. And it escalated and escalated until finally my son in the back seat, who was quite young at the time, I want to say he was he was maybe nine years old, just whispered really quietly, it was so quiet. It's actually amazing to me. I heard it, but he said, Mom, what should we do? Mm. What do you need me to do? Mm. And there was something about that that just stopped the whole habitual pattern and instinct that had taken over for me. And I got calm. It was like, I literally could feel my shoulders go down. I could feel my breathing come back online. And it was as though I needed to answer the question. And I realized that was it. What do we need to do to make this go away, to make this stop? And what became abundantly clear for me, Jeff, in that moment with these two kids in the back seat is I had to get the kids out of the car. And because I now was out of my habitual survival mode, instinct behavior, I started running through options, right? I had the the ability to think through, okay, well, what could we do here? We're in a two-door vehicle. They can't get out the back doors. I can't just yell, open the door and run. There's no windows big enough for them to crawl out. So I realized I had to stop the car and get these kids out. And I turned to this gentleman and said, hey, I actually called him, sir. I said, hey, sir, I'm, I understand that there's something you're looking for in this car, whether it's me or my purse or my wallet. I need to get my kids out. I'm going to pull up at the library and let them out up here. And it was not a question, Jeff. It was just mm. a statement. Right. But I was back in the driver's seat of controlling at least how I was showing up, mm. which ended up saving our lives and changing the outcome. He didn't allow us to pull over, but I went through enough scenarios with this gentleman of options, uh, including pulling up my phone and saying, okay, kids, should we watch a show while I talk to this gentleman just to keep you busy? And I was running through like SpongeBob SquarePants. Anyone want a little Kung Fu Panda? He was so thrown off by this whole reaction that his energy had de-escalated to a point where he just said, pull over. And I pulled over, he got out and took off. But it really crystallized that moment for me between just habitual patterns of reaction. Like mm-hmm. I went into full on, which is normal. This is how my brain is wired. We survive right. to actually being consciously online in the moment. And I feel that's rippled mm-hmm. out to the way I lead and the way I coach and the way uh, I live. That's certainly an example of being literally hijacked. But what do you mean when you ask the question in the first chapter, have you been hijacked? Yeah. 
For me, brain science is really personal. I take a lot from this concept of from experiences like that, that um, the the man in the car, but how do we live our lives fully? How do we access what's available to us? How do we stop feeling like we're not living our full potential, which is just way too common a perspective. And, um, and it's why I wrote this book. It turns out we actually operate in that mode of autopilot in reacting to what's around us 42% of the day. And that's when we're not stressed. The more stressed we become, the more we just go to what we've always known. I just got to get through today. I just got to get through this week. I have to get through the next couple of months. Christina, it's going to be okay. Mm. I will get through this. But I, I just don't think we should engage with life in a way where we're just getting through it. I mean, <laughs> it's, but the brain is hardwired to save neurological fuel. So it creates these habits, Jeff, these habits that come. And it's so strong um, that sometimes we don't even know they're in the background operating and they hijack they hijack our decisions. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, last weekend, a client of mine sent me an article on the impact of sugar in the brain. I don't mm. recommend looking it up. <laughs> it's not pretty, but I decided I was going to cut out sugar for the for the week. I, I made a small goal. I'm like, Christina, it's seven days. You can cut out sugar. Well, of course, I get dinner time rolls around and I've got a birthday party for a friend to go to. And lo and behold, they serve out trays and trays of creme brulee <laughs> and chocolate mousse and dark chocolate forest cake. And I'm sitting there looking at this. And what do I do? I rationalize why it's okay to have it in that moment. Well, I'll just do it today. Mm-hmm. It's okay just for now. It's not about the sugar. It's that a habit is so strongly formed that when sugar's around, I eat it. It hijacked my goal. And that's a silly example, but that happens in all of our lives every day. Mm. Christina uh, divides the book into four sections. I want to just tick these off real quick. Choosing your future, choosing your focus. I sense a theme. Choosing a winning mindset and choosing mastery. We've been talking a bit about choosing your future. I want to move into the second part of the book, uh, choosing Mm. your focus. And you give some very practical advice and some that as I read it, I'm like, I'm so thankful that I've employed some of this stuff. Not all of it. I've I've still got some work to do, but some of this I already have. Talk about the benefits of a calendar audit and and ensuring that all your activities are captured in in one place. What's that going to do for us? Yeah. Because we operate on uh, autopilot most of the time, we just, things come in and we say, yes, I'll do it. Shows up on the calendar. It's like, yep, I got it. And suddenly our calendars look more like Miami beach on spring break than, than something we're excited and interested in doing. In fact, I often hear people look at their calendar and say, oh, it's going to be a big week. Mm. That dread. The problem is when you generate that energy of dread, that's how you're going to move through your week. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be light. And it impacts your energy. It impacts your results. It impacts your relationships. It has all these subtle uh, consequences that erode your ability to live your life and choose greatness. And so I, I recommend everyone, actually, I learned this from a client 15 years ago, who was at the top of his game, he goes through his calendar every week for an hour to an hour and a half. And he's a very successful leader with over 100,000 employees. So he makes the time, think of how important it must be Mm. to just say, based on my goals, based on what I want, when I look at the past where I've spent time, the present where I'm spending time and the future where I'm going to spend time this week, am I moving my goals forward? Am I investing my time effectively? And is there value here? I often think of it as my life being a company. When, if my life is a company and I look at my calendar, because I put personal and professional there, do I have the time invested in the right places to move me the way I want to go and generate value for my company every day? And that's why this calendar audit is critically important. I also recommend merging your two do list in there because 
It's like you get through your meetings, those are on the calendar, mm-hmm. but then you still have 52 things on your desk to get done that we're not prioritizing, that we're not assessing whether they're generating value. We're just moving through to check them off because it feels so darn good, Jeff, to cross it off. But if you put it in your calendar in a work block that says, mm-hmm. just get stuff done, you can say, gosh, do I really have time to do that one this week? No, I'm going to move that off to a do some other time. And if it gets moved enough, maybe it's time to look at whether it needs to be done at all. So many advantages to that, one of which is is you've got a better handle on, at least you've accounted for time needed for those things such that when other requests come in, you can look at your calendar and go, "Eh, I better say no to that because I have carved out time to do these really important things. Those aren't there on the calendar. Then you say, end up saying yes to something you shouldn't have said yes to oftentimes, right? Yeah. Including family uh, engagements, which again, we're only one person. So if you have a personal calendar and a professional calendar, it's hard, to, it's hard to live in two places at once and manage both at once. But I will look at my calendar and put the things I know I need in there and then build around it. Those are like the foundational stepping stones that I need to be happy. So an example will be this afternoon, I'm flying out to go see my son, Ro, and that there were other things that showed up today trying to get in there, but it's in, it's in dark blue. I color coded. It's dark blue, it's not movable. So my assistant is not scheduling it this afternoon. So the personal time is also in there because that's what brings me so much fulfillment, right? It's, I need to make sure those are captured or date nights. We didn't have date nights on the calendar. And guess what? It's been, I hate to say it six weeks since I've been on a date. So last night, my husband's like, come on, let's just blow up the calendar tonight and go. I'm like, yeah, let's go out for dinner. So it's important. My wife and I are closet homebodies, I guess. Yeah. And on the weekends, we're both such that, uh, do I really want to fight the, the crowds and the people and the restaurant waits? And so Several years ago, we devised a date day. So every every <gasps> Wednesday, we've got four hours carved out where we just in the middle of the day where things are less, you know, busy and yeah. and 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 that's kind of that's kind of our weekly date thing is to do a date day. I love that, but because it's there, <laughs> it just happens. Yeah, yeah, and it's on the calendar, and everything else goes around it. And because it's on the calendar, it actually happens. <laughs> right? Yeah, it doesn't get uh, pushed off for something else. Um, sort of related to this, I want to I want to stay in this lane for just a moment. I teach a, an online cohort called Note Making mastery where we distinguish between note making and in, in, in general note taking. And, mm. and part of that is taking time every week to process what you've collected, what you've captured and go through it. And I'm always encouraging uh, members of the cohort to also set aside time, carve out time to think. Yes. What, what have you learned about the importance of, of doing that? Yeah. And many people may say, what are you talking about? I'm thinking all day, I'm working. But <laughs> right. actually... I mean, creative, deep thinking. Uh, We only have about 240 minutes available a day to have really what I call high octane thinking. Those are hot spots in the day where you feel bright and fired up. I'll give an example. Yesterday, I was wrestling with a problem all afternoon and I went from one meeting to the next thinking through with others how to solve it. And my hot spots in the morning. So I woke up at 4.30 today, like a lightning bolt and said, oh my gosh, that's it. I needed to know that that time was protected though. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's it. And I'm not all of a sudden back back-to-back meetings and lose the insight. So I want to process it. I want to look at it. I want to push on it. So I protect thinking time in our day that where we are at our best. And for some people, that's not going to be in the morning. It might be at night. For some, it might be after lunch. Just know where your hotspots are. Mm. And then it's really important I find to have what I call micro breaks. So intense periods of thinking and then micro breaks because the micro breaks are often where those insights actually happen. Mm. And what's so cool, Jeff, you can actually see it on an MRI scan. When you're looking at insights, you can see a, a burst of gamma waves that comes through. And so you can, insights are not only just revelation that we experience, you can see it, which is so cool. Mm. 
Do you find yourself setting a timer like Pomodoro style, 25 minutes on, five minutes break or 50 minutes thinking, 10 minute break, that kind of thing? Yeah, I did at one point. I still have the timer on my desk, but it is <laughs> it's officially gathering dust. The way that I the way that I look at it is when you start noticing yourself getting distracted, the brain no longer has enough energy to keep you focused. Right. That's that's your timer, your built-in timer. <laughs> my built-in timer, which can vary if I had a good night's sleep or not. And some days if I'm in a groove, that could be three hours and some mm. days it could be 25 minutes. So I use my internal mm. timer. But as soon as you notice yourself going, I'm just going to flip my phone over and look at the text, you likely have hit a mm. point where it's time for a micro break. I don't remember who it was, but there was the one gentleman you interviewed who talked about the importance of paying attention to that. And and if you know you wake yeah. up and you've got all this creative energy, lean into that, right? Yeah, he's a really cool gentleman, David Rock, Dr. David Rock. He actually created the Neuro Leadership Institute. He's a co-founder and he studies the brain at work. And what he talks about, it was interesting because I had a call with him and he said this morning, just as an example, he was so excited. He had such a great energy coming through from yeah. a insights perspective that he cleared his whole morning. <laughs> I think that's really powerful, right? Because yeah. that's that's the most important. It's more important than gold. It's just that is what's moving. That is your value creation currency is yeah. is ideation and thought as well as getting stuff done and hard work. So how do you combine those? Mm. Uh, but chat GPT is going to take all our jobs, right? No, just kidding. I know. Um, yes. <laughs> speaking of which, uh, chat GPT has been given a hard rap for hallucinating, making stuff up, yeah. right? Uh, there's this paragraph in Christina's book I want to highlight related to cognitive biases. She says, instead of slowing down to seek missing information, we err on the side of speed over accuracy and use our pre-existing knowledge, experiences, and beliefs to color between the lines. In other words, in the absence of information, we make stuff up. <laughs> we do. We do. We do because the brain can only process so much information every second. And there's a heck of a lot more information than that coming in. Uh, and I see this all the time when I work with um, teams, because people will go into a meeting, have the same meeting and leave with totally different interpretations of what actually took place. Right. Uh, it's because we're just filling things in. And why that's so important is when you are communicating with someone about something that matters, whether it's setting expectations, whether it's sharing what you're doing on the weekend where they're going to be a part of it, whether it's uh, your insights or thoughts on something, be very crystal clear and crisp. Be very crystal clear and crisp because the more you throw at them, it doesn't mean the more they will retain. It's more likely they will get lost. Mm. Another thing that I talk about in this cohort with, with members is the idea of selective ignorance and, and getting good at what information you let get in and what you realize isn't, isn't needed. Yes. Um, talk about some of the benefits of being what you call information treasure hunters. I love that phrase. Yeah. I uh, I often talk about including in the book, Choosing Greatness. I share the story Price Pritchett talks about um, in relation to the fly. I love the story. So if you've ever looked at a window in the summertime and there's a fly that just keeps hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and 10 feet away, there's an open door, but it never took the time to slow down, fly backwards and say, I wonder if there's another route. Mm. Human beings are like this. And, and what happens is when we hit our window, we tend to knuckle down and just drive harder, right? There's even sayings, the only, the only way out is through. Sure, unless there's an open door 10 feet away and we can make this a little easier. So I'm a big proponent of asking people for information, looking for different perspectives. Human beings are hardwired to stand to be understood. And what I mean by that is we have a very high need to be right. Because if we're wrong, 
it could lead to social rejection. There's actually a really good reason why we need to be right. There's no reason to judge yourself for it. It is evolutionary. The question is, what if we seek to understand instead of stand to be understood? Meaning asking questions, expanding our view, learning more information, because then our decision-making becomes exponentially sharper and clearer. And one of the greatest ways to gather information is through feedback, Jeff. I actually uh, am a big proponent of stopping people regularly to say, what advice do you have for me? Mm. Not what feedback. People don't love giving feedback. Feedback's got a, a neurological charge to it that makes people nervous. But if you just say, hey, based on what I'm doing right now, what advice do you have? What's one mm. pattern I'm repeating that you don't think is serving me? And just sharing information that way. I'll tell you, it's very cool because when I do this with an executive team, as an example, and we say, okay, let's use this guy, Jim. Jim, what does everybody think Jim is doing really well at? You tend to have a high degree of consistency. People see the same things. And if you say, what's one thing Jim could change and what advice do you have? It's like this box. Here's your greatest pattern that's eroding your success. Mm. And it's often the same 80% accuracy amongst the group and what they agree on. Sometimes I find, Jeff, what we do when we get feedback is we say, well, that's just me. I don't want to change me. This is not about changing you. It's changing the way you're engaging with the world. It's an action. If you shift that action, you could become even more effective and influential and successful and frankly, happy. I love that. You hit on something uh, one of my favorite authors, John Acuff, talks about in his book, Soundtracks. I don't know if you're familiar mm, with his yes. work or not. What are some of the, the benefits of, of self-talk and maybe share some practical advice uh, like you maybe would with a client when it comes to positive self-talk versus the typical negative self-talk mode that we're often stuck in? Yeah. This has been a learning experience for me over the course of my career because I grew up uh, as a Gen Xer at a time when saying hard things to yourself was sort of what we did. I, I think that was even being hard on yourself is seen as 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 what high performers do. Yes. I even hear people say that when I'm gathering, well, I'm hard on myself, but that's okay. That's how I perform better. Right. The problem is science debunks that myth. And when I engage with people who are at the top of their game, the Richard Bransons of the world, the CEOs in the book, the Olympic athletes I engage with at the book, they are not super hard on themselves. They are super hard on their performance in terms of what can I do and grow and do better. There's mm. there's an element to that, but they protect who they are as a person. They protect their self-confidence. They trust in themselves and rely on themselves differently. And that manifests through soundtracks. So an example in sports, um, Daniel Nestor, who I interview in the book, he's won eight grand slams and more titles in doubles tennis than anyone in history. Mm. And he talks about this concept of how he used to be at Wimbledon on center court when he was younger. And he would, let's say, hit the ball and it would go into the net and he would beat himself up. Oh, you idiot. People are watching. What are they going to think? Why mm. did you do that? All those self, those critical things we're used to hearing from ourselves. Mm. And the problem with that, which was so powerful when he shared this with me, is he just took all of that neurological energy he was putting into the game and turned it inward. Mm. But you're still in the middle of a game, Jeff. So now you're playing with one arm behind your back because you're busy focusing on other things. Right. And he worked with a sports psychologist uh, on how to interrupt that. And we do talk about that in the book, but it became very powerful and clear to me. What you're saying to yourself matters. Make sure that it's helping and not hindering your happiness and results. Mm. And I remember him saying something along the lines, I may get the percentage wrong here, but when he first heard the phrase, I think it was 90% of, of winning at tennis is, is mental or something like that. I think it was. He just thought that was bunk. <laughs> That's nuts. That's right. And earlier in his career, he did. He said people would tell him 90% of tennis is mental, 10% mm. physical. And 
as you grow into a sport or into a profession and you realize there's a lot of high performers up here. Mm-hmm. So whether or not I have enough muscle mass in my right arm may not be the differentiator. It's how am I using that muscle? How am I staying focused in the moment? And uh, and ended up taking his career to exceptional places. Well, I played tennis as a young man, and I think I would have won quite a bit more than I did because I didn't win a lot if I recognized that it's more mental than it is physical. Yeah. How does how does framing problems as questions help us to to better navigate change this this thing that we we struggle with so much change? Yeah, questions are. Um, this is something I would say when I was younger, I would have also dusted to the side the way Daniel did this concept of of self talk mm. and mental agility. But the more I watch peak performers, the more I coach people who are reaching stratospheric levels of success, the more I see them use questions to advance their careers. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a presentation coming up because fear of public speaking is fairly common. Uh, The thoughts that you're actually priming yourself are likely, gosh, what if I screw up? Gosh, what are they going to think of me when it's over? There's a lot of questions that are actually negative primers versus a question you could use is, how do I knock their socks off? Uh, What information do they need to know so that they walk away able to do what they're doing more effectively, like shifting, using questions to shift your focus away from self to outcome is super powerful. The other cool thing about questions, similar to the breakthrough I talked about yesterday, where I was stuck all afternoon and woke up really clear. I ended my day with a question and I wrote it down around this problem. And so when I wrote that question down, most of our processing happens when we are not consciously focusing on it. So it happened and my brain was connecting dots while I wasn't paying attention. And lo and behold, I woke up and the question was answered. So questions are a very, very strong catalyst to solve relationship problems, conflict issues, parenting challenges, uh, and of course, work issues. I love too some of the uh, research you share related to this. Can't remember which study it was, but it was turning verbs into nouns. I think was the gist yes. of it in the study on voters and voting. The concept of it is if you attach it to your identity. So when they were um, looking at getting people to come out to vote, and they said, "Come out and vote," you have a, a lower turnout than if you say, "Hey, voters!" Right? You are a mm-hmm. voter. Hey, voters! It's time to cast your vote. It's an identity thing. It's an identity thing. I really like that because if I think about it in relation to, say, exercise, if exercise is a goal. I can make a goal of working out every day this week for 30 minutes, which by the way, I have made many times over the past of my almost 50 years and been fairly unsuccessful at at that goal. But if I say I am fit, I am athletic, that is how I see myself. Mm -hmm. And so every day I'm going to engage in something that brings me back to a place of being fit or athletic, I'm far more likely to do it. And it feels less intense, right? It's like, oh yeah, well, that's who I am. So of course I'm going to do that. Mm. I don't know if you've read uh, the book Magic Words by uh, Jonah Berger. Just came out a couple of months ago. The subtitle, What to Say to Get Your Way. And he references the same study. I think you'd really, really enjoy that book. Oh, I'm going to check it out. Thank you. Uh, confidence is something that uh, a lot of us, I think, whether it's confidence in general or in a particular area, we just assume we have it or we don't. I, mean, I love how you put this. You say that we can put swagger in our step regardless of what our DNA is doing. <laughs> What are some things we can do when when self-doubt is trying to to get the upper hand and, yeah. and we're, we're lacking confidence in a particular area? Yes. The first is knowing it is a skill. It is not a trait, meaning you can enhance it. And I've spoken with thousands of people in what I do as an executive coach over the past 20 years. And people say, well, I'm not that confident. 
or people will, <laughs> will share feedback on someone else and say, well, they're not that confident. They lack self-confidence. Mm. Do they, do they, or are they not choosing? Cause it is a choice to actively grow that. So uh, it's like a muscle. You want to work it out every day. Really quick, easy ways to build your self-confidence are one, engage in activities that help you feel good about yourself. I think about that a lot with my kids. When I look at their sequence of activities they're in, are these helping them feel good? There's going to be ones that they win at some days and lose at other days, but overall in the grand scheme of things, are there wins? So for us personally, like winning in a relationship was a date night last night to a week ago. I could have said, gosh, I feel like it's a little flat right now. What's going on? And then suddenly I have a date night. It's a win. We're great. I feel confident about my relationship, right? It's it's just making sure you have the right mix of activities in your week to feel good about what's going on in your life. Mm. Exercise is a phenomenal way to build confidence because it allows your natural endorphins to go. It boosts your dopamine. It gets you a sense of feeling on top of the world, which is manually added into your week by choice. Watching your talk tracks, watching what you're saying to yourself. I understand it's a habitual pattern. I understand that self-doubt happens without us even thinking about it. And I Mm. also understand that you can choose to listen to it or choose to say something else. And so counterbalancing self-doubt, uh, we talk about a lot in the book because it's. Um, I think people think it's automatic, so it's who they are. Self-doubt mm-hmm. is just a safety mechanism. Anytime you sense risk that's kicked on. And so we have to be choosing to engage with our day in a way that makes us feel confident and that we've got it, even when we don't know necessarily all the answers. A couple of years ago, I wrote an ebook called Dream Big, the five yeah. personal habits that will supercharge your life. And two of these habits relate to my next question. Dream, by the way, is an acronym. Dance with discomfort. Ritualize your reading. If you didn't know this, I think that's a mm. very important uh, habit to, to create. Examine your energy, assemble your advisors, and master your mornings. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, thanks. With, with mornings being focused mostly on self-care. Um, talk a bit about the importance of self-care and learning to manage your energy versus managing your time. Yeah. Well, this one is also very personal to me. I had um, two kids, two dogs, uh, my, uh, my business, and both kids were under five. And I actually ran into health challenges because I kept saying yes to everything. I got mm-hmm. it. I'll do it. No problem. I'm here. I didn't ask for help. I didn't ask for help. I did not take care of my body. And your body is like a car. If you don't put gas into it, it is not going to operate effectively. It's It'll start to sputter and eventually end up on the side of the road and need to be towed away. And I think that's what happened to me. So I started learning about self-care because it felt a little bit woo-woo to me, a little unimportant, a little bit yeah. of a luxury that people who don't have all the busyness I have must enjoy. Turns out, no, we, 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 choose, we have to choose self-care. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity if you want your brain to operate properly. I mean, forget your body for a moment. The brain and and body are directly connected. If you're not taking care of your body, your thinking isn't as sharp. Mm -hmm. Your decision-making gets sluggish. It's like if I have, let's say, a Big Mac at lunch and you ask me to say something intelligent an hour later, it's not going to be that bright. (laughs) It's just not. I'm going to want to crawl up on the couch and watch Netflix. So being really aware. In fact, Mm -hmm. diet is a great example of this. Self-care relates to nutrition Mm -hmm. as well, because when you eat poorly, 
it decreases our productivity by up to 20%. So all of these elements, um, Richard Branson in the book talked about this importance of circles. He uses the metaphor of circles. Draw a circle around yourself. What do you need in that circle to operate at your best from a health perspective, from a friendship perspective, from a family perspective? And only then can you start expanding that circle to incorporate your community, your work, your family, all the rest of it. But you have to start with your circle first. And Jeff, I think as a, a parent, I will share, that was really hard for me to get until Mm. one of my kids said, mom, I think you need a break. And I realized by not taking a break, I'm actually not even showing up that well for others. So taking care of yourself is just so important. From the mouths of babes. I know. (laughs) Well, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask, not directly related to the book, if I may, in the the few minutes we have left. Before I do that, anything from the book I haven't hit on that, that you wished I had that you want to take time to talk about now? For me, the the core principle behind choosing greatness is that it is a choice. And it's not some far off day when we retire that greatness will finally come because we put all the effort in. It's a daily engagement in your life. So you feel great about what happened. You feel great about how you showed up. Mm. And when things are outside of your control, you're reacting in a way that you feel very proud of or responding in a way you feel very proud of And, um, and getting yourself off autopilot to really be present because... I do hear a lot of people saying they feel they're missing out on who they thought they would be, but that doesn't need to be a, a, a truth. You can change that by choosing differently today. And I urge people, life happens. Things like that gentleman jumping into my car occur every day in people's lives. And I got lucky. Uh, so I take very, very seriously this essence of pulling life forward and bringing your best each day. Love it. Uh, a question I love to ask every guest is one about books. Surprise. Um, mm. Over the course of your career, what would you say are the books that have had the biggest impact on you? Yes. I love Happiness Advantage uh, mm. by Sean Aker. It's, um, it's somewhere in the back. I handed out a lot because similarly, I never really thought of happiness as a choice. And, mm. and so the way he, he wouldn't use those terms, but the way he shared science around happiness and how to drive it was really powerful for me. Mm. I, I would That has been probably the most impactful book. I don't know that anyone's ever mentioned that one before. Uh, it's certainly a book I'm familiar with, but in the 10 years I've been doing the show, that, that may be a first. So kudos to you for, yeah. <laughs> for suggesting a book we haven't had suggested yet. Um, I mentioned the cohort I lead uh, earlier around note making. There's, there's four pillars in the cohort. There's uh, collect, connect, crystallize, and create. And we mm. walk through, I talked about selective ignorance earlier and in getting good at collecting what you do and what you don't collect, uh, connecting new ideas to existing ideas that come into what uh, hopefully is a central hub, a single place, uh, crystallizing those thoughts I- into your, your own words, and then using those as building blocks to create new things and allowing you know things to sort of serendipitously crash into one another and, and generating new ideas from when otherwise disparate, seemingly disparate things come together. Mm. Um, as a writer in particular, I'd love to know maybe some of your methods or tricks or tools for capturing those things that you want to remember that you want to make use of later. What are some things you do to just kind of keep track of your knowledge or personal knowledge management? Yeah. I learned this by watching my dad. He was, when I was growing up, he always had a index card, which Mm. everybody might not know what that is, but those little, (laughs) right. Three by four or whatever the dimensions are. He had one in his pocket at all times. And I would see him pulling it out throughout the day. He had a little pencil in his pocket and he would just write things down. And I asked him actually, as I was going through this process, what it was he was writing. And he said, as ideas bubble up, I don't want to lose them because Mm. that's, that's my competitive advantage. That's my 
that's the difference I can make, right? I just moved something forward. And if we don't grab it, it's gone. Mm. It's gone because it hasn't been earmarked in our mind mm. uh, and, and on paper. So I'm a big proponent of actually writing things down in real time. I mm. use my phone just because I know it's always with me. Right. Uh, and I actually use my calendar. So if I've got something coming up, I will put a thought into a place where I'm thinking. So I've got a, a think block. I will put a task into a work block right away. So if it's something that needs to be actioned on or further processed, it goes into my calendar. I use voice memos fairly often. Uh, and I text them to myself. And at the end of the day, I go through all the texts I sent myself. I mean, it sounds silly, but I, I find the tools that are always around because I don't have an index card. Mm. Uh, I don't have pockets the same way my dad had in his, his button down shirt. And um, so it's been very effective for me. And then at the end of the day, when I go through my texts, I put those somewhere. Mm. I, it's really important for me that they move into action. Definitely. I love that method. That's great. Christina's book, again, is called Choosing Greatness, an evidence-based approach to achieving exceptional outcomes from one Gen Xer to another. It is an exceptional book. And uh, I highly recommend it. Christina, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Have a great day. You can connect with Christina online and dig into those resources we talked about, the book she recommended, as well as a book I mentioned, and of course, her new book, Choosing Greatness, all that and more is at the show notes page for this episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 476 for episode 476. Don't forget, there's still time to try Read to Lead Plus, that new premium tier inside the Read to Lead community free for 30 days. When you go to jeffbrown.me, you'll get access to a free training that our guest today led just yesterday and at least two more workshops, including one from Lisa Bragg and myself plus lots of other content. No obligation. It's all free. Try it for 30 days. Read to lead plus. It's at jeffbrown.me. I'm particularly excited about next week because one of my favorite authors of all time is releasing his, I believe, 21st book. The book is called The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. And the author is the one and only Seth Godin. I'm also excited about the fact that he is indeed going to be our guest on the show next week for the third time. Well, that does it for this week. Hope to see you next time when we welcome Seth Godin. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.